So today's uh, the last message, if you will, in this series we've called This Is Us, and we've been talking about relationships. So if you're a guest today, you might not know what's about to happen. Uh, so I'll tell you, if you haven't been here in a little while, you might not know. A few weeks ago, I asked you, send me your questions about relationships, about parenting, relationship, uh, marriage, and a family. And we're gonna, on this day, we're going to take the questions that you gave and we're going to answer them. Now, um, we're not answering questions, or let me say it this way, we're not taking questions live, okay? It's not like town hall, and there's a reason for that, is because uh, Mark and I are not relationship experts, <laughs> and as we read the questions, we realized relationship issues are very, very complicated. And so we're not like, we're gonna be, you're not going to be able to tweet in questions this time the way we've done it once before. But we did take your questions. You gave us a lot of questions, and they were very, very good. So what we've tried to do is take the questions we've got the most, and we've tried to take the categories that you were most curious about and to answer those questions today. Um, in setting up for this series, I was reminded of the parable that Jesus told about two people. One built their house on a rock. The other one built their house on sand. And he said that the difference between a person who builds their house on a rock or the person who builds their house on a sand is that both people heard God's word. One of them applied it and the other one didn't. And the one that did not apply God's word when the storms of life came because their foundation wasn't very good, everything caved in. And so our culture, when it comes to relationships, is shifting sand. And so the way that you can build your life, we just sang it, on Jesus, you can build a foundation that will last is you can build your life on Jesus and his words. And so I just want to kind of give that as the backdrop of our question and answer time this morning is that we're going to be encouraging you, take what the Bible says, take what Jesus says, and apply it. We don't want to just be a church that gives information, right? Transformation doesn't come when you learn new things. Transformation comes when you take God's word and apply it to your life, yes. then your life is changed. So that's the kind of church we want to be. All right, so with uh, no further ado, we want to um, start with the first question, which is kind of softball. Oh, by the way, this is Pastor Mark. He knows 300% at least more than I do, so that's why he's here. He's going to bail me out when I get in trouble. But the, the first question we're starting with is just tell us about your family. So, Mark, okay. go ahead. <laughs> wow, I grew up in... Uh, a town about the size of Mayberry. We had a Barney and an Andy. No, I'm not kidding. We did. <laughs> and uh, grew up and went to school with the same people I started school with in the first grade. That's who I graduated with. It was wonderful growing up in a small town, sort of sheltered. Had wonderful, wonderful, incredible Christian parents. I didn't realize how they incredible they were until they passed away several years ago. Then I realized what, uh, what benefits they gave me. I grew up in the tumultuous 60s and 70s when everything was questioned. And thankfully, I grew up in the Jesus movement during that time. And so I, that sort of gave me part of my spiritual heritage. But um, been, been in a Christian family all my life in a small town, and I'm thankful for it. Great. Um, I, oh, so did you mention you were the middle child? Oh, I'm the middle child. I'm the persecuted one. So that explains family. a lot, right? I just want to make that clear. I forgot uh, about that. <laughs> now I have to also admit I'm the baby, so that explains a lot. Oh, that also. explains a lot. Yeah, that explains a lot in my family. Yeah, how, how many we got? Come on now. Come on, baby children. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, all right. Good, 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 good. Yeah, we'll have a revolt here in a minute. Okay, I, I have one sister, no brothers. She's five and a half years older. 
my mom and dad were very uh, lower income, blue collar, hardworking people. My dad worked on a dredge boat in the Mississippi River, so he would be gone for days at a time, and he worked seasonally. My mom did administrative work. Um, I was raised in a small church. I was raised in the city, kind of a, kind of a city kid. And um, uh, my father's not a believer. My mom is. Uh, and I really attribute a lot of my spiritual inheritance from her, which I'm very, very grateful for. Grew up in a really small church. My great-grandfather pastored it. And um, I think that's, I think, I like, I'm like Forrest Gump. I think that's all I want to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, go ahead and take the first question. Okay. With many homes now being two-income families, where both husband and wife hold full-time jobs, how should that affect the household roles of mom and dad, who is the spiritual head of the home? Wow. Well, we got really two questions there that sort of interrelate. Uh, one has to do with roles in the family, and the other one is who is the spiritual head of the home? So let's try to tackle both of those. First of all, I want to say, since World War II, actually during World War II, is when things began to change. All the guys, just about in America, were gone to fight. And so women began to take over the roles, even like in factories, and they became uh, working women. And, and, and before, within about 10 years after the war, that became the norm. Many women were in the workplace. Part of the reason is the economy sort of demanded those kinds of things, and, and uh, it got to where now it's very difficult for families to make it without both uh, spouses working, and so that's sort of the reality of how it is, and we can wish for the good old days to go back in the Bible, you know, the man was the provider and the woman did the home. Have you read the Proverbs 31 woman? That woman does everything. <laughs> This was in the, look, she, she grows the food, plants food, grows the food, harvests the food, makes the bread, fixes up the house, cleans the house, uh, buys land, signs contracts, uh, instructs the children, feeds the children, instructs the children, and her husband is standing by the gate. <laughs> and uh, I just want to tell you, truthfully speaking, there's never been a time in history when it's just been sometimes men do this, women do this. It's just not that easy. And our, well, we have to accept that's how it is. By the way, many women here can do things uh, that men have done or might be better at certain things and finances or this, that, and other in the home. And it's just ridiculous to try to divide roles between men role, women role, when really the truth is the Bible says in a marriage, uh, man and woman become one. And they submit to one another. And let me, let me tell you what, being the, the head of the house, I don't want to be in charge of a lot of stuff. Most of the stuff that goes on in that house, I don't want to be in charge of that because I wouldn't be good at it. But yet some of you are single parents and you have to do that. Yeah. So what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, you know, the man's supposed to be a provider, so I'm a single mom, so I'm just going to sit around and wait till a man comes and provides. No, you're not. You're going to work and you're going to provide for your family because it's the right thing to do. And that's not an unbiblical thing to understand, not at all. Um, I, wanna, I do want to say that when the Bible, we, we, we hear it said a lot of times, uh, the man is the spiritual leader of the family. The man is the priest of the home. I, I'm really sorry to mess you up, but that is not in the Bible anywhere. It never says that in the Bible. Uh, I think where people get that where it says is, is the man is head of the woman. 
It doesn't say priest of the home because it is the job of mom and dad to both teach their children and have Jesus in their home. And sometimes moms may be better at telling the stories or doing the little devotionals than the guys, or maybe sometimes guys are better at saying, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, get in a car, we're going to church. It do, honestly, it doesn't really, it, it, get, my wife and I together took on the spiritual role in our family because we both are Christians and wanted our children to be raised in the Lord. And that's biblically, I think, more than anything, that mutual submission to one another and shared roles. And yet, sometimes single parents don't have that. So what does a single parent do? Well, they become the spiritual leader of their home. They have to. They have to and they should. So, um, you know, there are times when homes are spiritually unbalanced. Um, and so what do you do? Well, one person may have to just fill in that role for the sake of the children. I, I want to read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It says, the unbelieving husband shares to an extent in the holiness of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is touched by the holiness of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be left out. As it is, they're included in the spiritual purposes of God. If you try to say, all right, honey, if you're not spiritual leader of our church, our kids are just going to suffer. I'm just going to let it happen. What? No, no, come on, let's do this as a team, and if you happen to be in a, in a home where half the team isn't pulling, then you pull, pull, do what's right for the sake of the family. I, I'll throw this out real quick. It's amazing how an unequal yoke doesn't matter when you're dating, but brother, when you get married, you expect them to jump up to that equal yoke. Listen, think about that, young people. <laughs> think about that ahead of time. Well, I appreciate Sorry. what you said. No, no, I appreciate that, and I'm, I'm a beneficiary of that. As I said earlier, my mom's a believer, and my dad's not. I appreciate her investment in my life. Right. Hey, uh, next question as we go there. Guys in the media booth, we can't see the bottom half of the screen. A little bit's cut off. So that's the part that tells us when it's time to stop talking. <laughs> and uh, unless we're going to be till 3.30, if there's a way to shift that up, I don't know if you can. All right, how do you address the many challenges of a blended family? So this is one of the questions that we realized that there's so many nuances, there's really no way for us, you know, to consider every nuance that there is. But I, I would just say this generally for blended families, and I think we have more blended families now probably than, than any time, at least that I can remember. You know, I would just say try to remember this change is hard. So in a blended family situation, oftentimes what you have is a couple who have been through a difficult divorce or something, whatever, whatever brought them to the point that they're now a blended family and a married couple of the blended family, they have been eager to put behind and heal and recover and get through and get over. And now this is a day of celebration for them. You know, this is the new marriage, the honeymoon, the newlywed years and all of that. And so while you're living that, usually the children that you bring into the relationship are not. Usually they're at the very opposite end. And what's happening to them is they're grieving because their ideal and their lifelong dream of having their original mom and dad live together in one home happily ever after has been shattered. And so oftentimes what you find is the enthusiasm of the new couple, you know, sort of, sort of anchored down by the grieving or maybe what you might interpret as negativity of the kids who are trying to figure out how to work this out. So one of the things I would say is uh, you have to allow... As you celebrate, you have to allow space for grieving. They have to grieve. And oftentimes, they don't maybe even start grieving until the new relationship starts because they don't know how everything's going to land. 
And so you have to allow space for grieving. And I would say don't take grieving personally. They're not grieving because you're you, if you're the stepmom or dad. They're grieving because their mom and dad don't live together anymore. And their family dynamics changed forever. And they didn't get to choose. They didn't have a choice. So I, I would say that first is uh, remember to give them a chance to grieve through. Don't take it personal. And remember you're starting a new family, right? So just like everybody who's married went through this process, you grew up with your traditions, they grew up with their traditions, and, and now you're trying to, as a young couple, when you were married originally, you, you had to say, what are we going to do at Christmas? What are we going to do at Thanksgiving? How are we going to do all of this? How are we going to establish our new traditions? All that is starting over again. So I just want to encourage you, you have to start a new family again. And it can't be all about doing it the way you did it before or the other person did it before. And you probably have children that are old enough to have a voice. So now you have to give them some input on what are the traditions that you did before that you liked and should we do those or not. So you, so you have to communicate and have some conversations about that. I, I would also say to all blended families, you have to work really hard to earn trust, right? Because it's not guaranteed that you're going to do the right thing for them because they don't, they don't really know you very well yet. So you have to earn trust. And this is true for everybody, but I just want to contextualize it for blended families. Your devotional life is like priority one. Because if you're not careful, you're going to be looking into that new marriage and into that new family to provide things for you that only Jesus can provide for you. And so you're going to wonder, why are we happy and they're not happy? And you, you're even going to suffer at times what will at least feel like rejection if it's not outright rejection. So what you have to do is you have to get your acceptance from Jesus. You have to have a strong devotional life where you're reading your Bible and you're praying because Jesus is going to accept you. He's going to love you unconditionally. And the best way you can influence that blended family is to enter into it from a position of strength, not a position of, why won't this family meet my needs? So you, you have to get your needs met, in a sense, by Christ and then move into that family from a position that I am accepted, therefore I don't have to deal with my insecurities and, and all that in front of everybody else. Anyway, so next question. Good deal. Okay, it seems no matter what I do, nothing works. What do you do when you feel like you're the only one trying? Um, this, this question is very similar to a lot of questions we got. Some of them have to do with, in my marriage, I'm the only one trying. In, in counseling, I'm the only one trying. With my children, I'm the only one trying. In disciplining my children, I'm the only one doing the disciplining. Uh, in my job, I'm, it's, it's amazing. We had a lot of responses to this. And I sort of want to look at it uh, in, in a way that sort of can cover everything. There are times that life is going to be a one-way effort. It's just going to happen sometimes. There are times that that's going to happen. And part of the reason that happens sometimes is because there's this, we're speaking on two different wavelengths. With marriages especially, I, I, may, I may think my spouse is just, just clueless about something and they're going I'm clueless about something and we if we met and talked and said hey look I feel like I'm the only one trying here and they're going are you kidding I'm the only one trying and we're and all of a sudden we might find out we both are trying really hard we're just speaking two languages and then again there are times when you are the only one trying <laughs> it's just the truth that you are and um so what do you do in, in times like that what do you do well you have to understand that God is working even when you don't think he's working. And one of the things you can do 
is you can say, God, even though I feel like I'm the only one trying, instead of just giving up, I'm going to do what I do unto the Lord. I'm going to let you be the one I serve instead of me trying to always get the perfect response out of the person that I'm trying to change. And really that's sort of what it is. Otherwise, here's what develops. A victim mentality, a poor me victim mentality. And let me tell you what, that will drive a couple, that will drive families apart. That will not draw them together. The last thing that will help a marriage is, I'm the only one doing so-and-so. You never, I always, you never. And I'm telling you, that's not where it goes. So I say, let's serve the Lord and say, God, I'm going to, until we get this right, God, I'm just going to serve you. I'm going to do what's right anyway. And let's see if we can communicate in some of those things. And know this, sometimes you're going to have to go at it alone. Great, great, excellent. I think I'm going to let you answer the rest of the questions. Is that all right? I I grew up in a family where the parents fought often, partly because my dad wasn't saved, my mom was. Boy, I I recognize that. Uh, Partly because of money. I don't want to take this into my relationships. How do I remove this learned pattern from my relationships? Great, great question. Um, You know, I, I would say seek inner healing. Because I want to I make you two guarantees that I think are going to be true for everybody. Um, if you grew up in a setting like that, it affected you more than you think it did. And it has a direct impact on your present relationships more than you think it does. You may think, well, you know, that was a long time ago, or I'm grown up now, or I live away from home. I, I'm just telling you, if those issues haven't been addressed and you haven't found that inner healing, um, it, it has a, a big impact on your life. So how do I find that inner healing? Well, I think you have to invest heavily in self-awareness. So the greatest, let me say it this way, one of the greatest gifts that you and I have to bring into any relationship is a very, very high self-awareness. Oftentimes, uh, I, I, I don't have the, the science on this to say definitively, But oftentimes, when damage is done in a relationship, it's done by a person with low self-awareness. Because you just don't know who you are. You don't know your strengths. You don't know your weaknesses. You don't know that. Remember when Isaiah in Isaiah 6 was standing before God, and he said, you know, woe is me, a man with unclean lips. And when he got a revelation of God, he saw himself. The first thing he saw was how broken he was and how much he needed God. So the reason that a self-awareness, a high self-awareness is so critical is because it helps you see how much more you need God than you think you do. And it shows you where you need God. And so I I think those are always true. The other thing I would say is um, seek to learn new patterns. Now, I think that when you have a pattern, like a negative pattern, like the way you communicate or whatever, that's attached to a wound, you can try to change that pattern all you want. But until that wound is, is beginning to heal, you'll find it nearly impossible to change the pattern. Because the wound is where the pattern gets its fuel. It gets its energy and its drive and its persuasion from the wound. So, uh, and that's where I think that uh, sort of inner healing and counseling have to work together. You can try to, you can read a book and go to a conference and learn new ways of doing things. And you're capable of learning them. You just can't apply them very well until you have the power inside to apply them. Where does the power come from? From the grace of God that heals our hearts and gives us the power to act in new ways. So um, I want to read, uh, or I want to give you uh, this book. I'm not going to give it to you. It's the only one I got. 
I want to recommend it to you. If, if you were, say, you were stuck on a deserted island, you could only have one book on marriage and relationships the rest of your life, which one would it be other than the Bible? There it is. The name of this book is How We Love. And um, this is a fantastic book. If you've heard of Love Languages, this is like the much, much deeper version of it. And I think it's very, very helpful, uh, particularly in self-awareness, identifying yourself as a couple and learning new patterns. Um, the other thing I want to do is give you Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus has ways of doing things. And they're right, and they're good, and they're loving, and they're true. And you can learn from Jesus new ways of doing things, but until there's some amount of healing done, the new way won't stick. So if that makes sense, I think you have to put those together. All right, next question. Okay, what's the difference between love and enabling? How do you know you went too far trying to help a loved one? In the first service, there were more heads nodding during this than any time. Yeah. I, it was amazing. We've all been touched by this. Let me sort of, let me, let me sort of talk about the word enabling. Enabling is when we try to help our spouse or our children or our grown adult children or our friends. We try to help them uh, from suff keep them from suffering the results of some bad decisions they've made because we love them. And that's great. And, and every time they make that bad decision, we feel this pressure. We've got to keep loving them because if we don't love them, if we don't help them, it means we don't love them. And then they just keep making the same decisions over and over. And it's this vicious cycle that never ends. And all of a sudden, I'm a bad parent, I'm a bad spouse, I'm a bad friend because I, if I can't say no, I won't help you because I always have. And I always said I'd be there. And so then you're always there. And it just happens over and over. The problem is it doesn't help the person at all. In fact, it doesn't help them at all. Let me give you these, these definitions. Here goes. Helping. Helping is doing something for someone that they're not capable of doing themselves. Enabling is doing something for someone that they can and should do for themselves. And that's the difference. That's, it's, it's the difference. When we are trying to take away the, the consequences that someone actually needs to learn from, from something they have done, then what we're doing there is we're ending up enabling them. Now, how do you do that? How do you, how do you help and not enable? Well, sometimes it involves boundaries. Sometimes you have to have boundaries. You have to give your children boundaries, your grown adult children boundaries. You have to give sometimes even a spouse boundaries. Hey, even like your grown parents' boundaries. <laughs> I'm serious. Sometimes boundaries, have, you say, look, uh, we're not going there. We're not, I'm sorry, we're not going there. Because if I let you do that, then I'm letting you control my family, and I can't do that anymore. Also, it's a, uh, sometimes we can call it tough love or whatever, but we got to learn this. Parents, we need to learn this early. Suffering is not always bad. I'm serious. Suffering is not always bad. Um, if, you're, if your child gets in trouble for school for shooting their teacher a bird, and they come home and you're mad at the teacher for getting mad at them, let the kid suffer. Let him write 7,000 sentences. Suffering is not always bad. The other thing, strife in the home is not always bad. We always say anything for peace. Oh, no, 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 no. Not anything for peace. 
Strife may be when the camel, uh, when the straw breaks the camel's back and you need to say, go, out, go, enough done. Strife is not always bad. And how about this one? Your control of the situation is not always good. Because you don't control how other people do. You can't. You can't fix people. That's one thing that's taken me years to figure that out. Uh, so when it comes to our children, there's this thing called parenting. But there's this thing called de-parenting. Where we treat our, teach our children how to make decisions outside of us. And at that point, they make decisions and they have to suffer the consequences. Now we can help them deal with the consequences, but we can't shield them from it. Enabling shields somebody from the consequences. Loving helps them deal with the consequences that they've brought upon themselves. Great. Well, fantastic. Okay, next question. If you're in a loving relationship, why should it matter what gender the other person is? It's not like heterosexual relationships have been extremely successful over the last few years. I think that's what, the, or a few decades maybe. Okay, um, first I want to say this. Uh, whoever submitted the question, thank you. Uh, this, this is the question that is floating around in our culture uh, in many places. And we've got to be a place where we can ask questions, right? Um, so I, I want to thank you and assure you this is a safe place to ask questions. Questions aren't wrong. 70% uh, of people, 18 to 36-year-olds, have a favorable opinion of gay marriage in America. So we can't just shut the door and pretend like this question isn't out there. So I, I want to thank you for submitting the question and also just tell you that uh, this is a safe place to ask questions. Now, this is the, this is the tense one because this is where all the pressure is in our, in our culture right now. So the question uh, is basically saying this, is, is love all that matters, right? I mean, is love, is love what makes our decisions for us? Now, Proverbs says that the heart above all things is most deceitful. In other words, your heart will trick you, right? It'll make you think things are one way when they're another way. It'll make you think that because you want something, it's the right thing. So um, if love is all that matters, if I love something, I should be able to have it. Well, I mean, I love chocolate. I love dessert. Uh, I think I ought to be able to eat it, you know, every day and every meal and all the time, but I can't because there's boundaries and they're there for a reason. Uh, what, if, what, if, what if I said, I love someone else's spouse? Should I be able to have them? Well, well, no, I shouldn't be able to have them. Why should I not be able to have them? Because there are boundaries. Where do the boundaries come from for relationships? Well, they come from the person who created relationships. They come from God. And so we have to acknowledge what those boundaries are and the wisdom of those boundaries, whether we understand them or not. Now, I, I'm going to take a little more time with this question because it's not easy to answer. It is complex, and there is a lot of pressure there. Uh, but, but I do want you to know this. Oftentimes, if we're not careful, we set up a no-win scenario where our culture says either you agree with us and say what we say, you know, or, or you're hateful or you're whatever. On the other hand, if we're not careful, we in the church shut the doors and say, well, now the culture's abandoned the truth, and if you don't agree with us, then you just be quiet and go along. And, and it's a no-win situation. It, it, we have to have dialogue. There has to be a place that we can have conversations. Because we're sending our kids off to university, and they're getting all kind of information that we may or may not agree with as parents and churches. 
And so we have to let them dialogue that out here somewhere. It's got to be, yeah. we can't judge people for questions. So um, here's my concern, two concerns. One is, I, I think if we're not careful, we're making, we're drawing our conclusions based on cultural pressure. Okay, so let me give you, I'll put a little chart up here, you can see. So the Bible is truth, right? That's, that's what we in Christianity recognize as the source of truth. The Bible is, is the truth. It tells the truth, it is the truth, it doesn't lie, anything like that. So theology then are man's thoughts about God. That's our attempt to try to organize that truth in a way in which we can access it. So we're trying to get our arms around what that truth is and means. Psychology are man's thoughts about man. Philosophy are man's thoughts about man's thoughts. <laughs> so you can see then, and I'm not against any of those fields inherently, but you can see then every time we take a step away from truth, we're going to arrive at conclusions that may disagree with that original source of truth. So what we have to do is be very careful about where we get our source of information. And look, nobody, nobody, no one human holds the truth perfectly. So we're all trying to strive at do we adequately understand what God said and intended about any given subject. So we're trying to understand. So that's what theology does for us. But every time, so my, my challenge to you if this is a question that you have or you're 18 to 36 and you're being bombarded with this, where, where is your source of information on the conclusion that you're bringing? Is it coming from philosophy? Is it coming from psychology? Is it coming from theology? Is it coming from the Bible? And so my encouragement to you as, uh, you know, as Christians is we have to try to get as much as we can understand our truth from what God has told us the source is. So... Let me give you just two summary thoughts about what the Bible says about it. There's no way to unpack all of it today. There are clear scriptures that show us that gay relationships are outside of the boundaries that God has set. The second thought is there are no scriptures that affirm gay relationships. So in other words, my challenge to you then is if the Bible's our source of truth, go through that source of truth and find an example of a gay relationship that is affirmed or seen in a positive light. There aren't any. So, so what does that tell us? Well, in our culture, we have these anecdotal things that pop up on social media that say, hey, boom, here's everything that Jesus ever said you know, about gay marriage or gay relationships, and then there's a big blank screen because he didn't say anything about it. And so our assumption to speak into that vacuum is since Jesus didn't say anything about it, it must be okay. Well, Jesus didn't say anything about pedophilia, but we're not using that argument there, are we? I've not heard it from I hope we're not using that argument there. So we have to be very careful on, on what this means. Now, the other part of the question says, it's not like heterosexual relationships have been extremely successful. I, I'm with you. I grieve the number of failed and broken marriages that we see in our society today and the children who suffer from them. I grieve with you. I, I'm, there's a problem, and I, I see it. However, I think you have to separate our failure to do God's plan from whether or not God's plan is good. That's right. Okay, so that would be the same way as me saying, you know, the church has failed to do God's plan of winning the world to Christ. Then maybe we ought to throw the plan out and stop trying. Well, no. God's plan to share the love of Jesus with the whole world is good. 
Just because we failed at it doesn't make the plan questionable. It's, uh, so I think you have to look at it that way. Uh, in world history, by the way, I, I haven't done the scientific research, but I'm, I'm going to guess you can find it. Uh, heterosexual relationships and marriage have been wildly successful on the whole. I'm not saying there's not problems, but by percentage. So I, I put on my Facebook page this morning three documents that you can go and look at that would give you more than we have time to talk about today. Uh, one is uh, the, the AG, the Assembly of God World Fellowship, has a statement on marriage. The 17 pages, fantastic. It'll give you all the theology. It'll hit the nuances of the scriptures that may be seen by some as controversial in this regard. I put another uh, article by a pastor who has same-sex attraction. He works, for Ravi, uh, he works with Ravi Zacharias Ministries, and his whole angle is, even though I have the struggle myself, we can't change the definition of marriage because if we do, we change the gospel. It's a very interesting read. The other paper I put on there, uh, I'm not even saying to you, you're going to agree with 100% of it. I'm saying it is a current version of the science in terms of is a person's gender identity or sexual orientation set and unmovable. And it gives you more science than, if you're like me, I'm not a, a huge scientific mind, but I can glean from it. But if you are, you'll find it very, very invigorating, filled with a lot of great studies. Okay, second concern I have that I want to mention, and we got to move on, is uh, I'm very, very concerned about the church's reputation. Uh, unfortunately, for reasons we don't have to go, who knows how many, but I'm very concerned that the church uh, has gained a reputation that it rejects people and hates people and all of that, and I'm very, very concerned about that. Because it's a misrepresentation of the gospel and a misrepresentation of the love of Christ. And so, and unfortunately, sometimes our interactions with people, our jokes we tell in private, our attitudes toward people, and the things we put on social media reconfirm that thought about the church rejecting people. So I want you to know if, if you struggle with same-sex attraction, uh, I can, I'm not telling you there's no, you're going to find somebody at Kingwood that's going to reject you. You can find somebody if you look. And any pastor that tells you that's not true is lying. What I will tell you is the leadership of our church and the majority of our church will not reject you. We love you, and I, I am beyond thrilled that you're here, and we want to do everything we can do to show you the love of God and help you in the journey. And, and to say uh, you're in a journey that's uh, very lonely and has challenges that probably only you understand and a, and a few others understand. So we sympathize with you. We love you. Look, most people don't wake up one day and say, hey, by the way, I want to have same-sex attraction. It doesn't happen that way. It, it happens, and they don't, most oftentimes we don't know why it happens, and then they have to figure out, what do I do? And the last thing a person like that needs is to be rejected. <laughs> so anyway, that's, again, I'll refer back to the infamous Forrest Gump. That's all I got to say about that. <laughs> Go ahead, Mark. I grew up all my life in church. A lot of times I didn't want to go, but my mom made me anyway. I'm already hearing my child say she doesn't want to go on some Sundays. What should I do to tell her you're going to go, like it or not, without telling her that? Glad you, you got that one. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know what? Every, every parent has had to deal with that somewhere. I'm preacher's kids, too. I mean, we've all had to deal with the idea of, do I have to go to church today? Um, Obviously, but I want to ask you the question. I want, I want to give you the scariest thought in the world. 
What if you let your children be in charge of the spiritual family, of your spiritual mm. home? You gonna let your kids be in charge of that? Good grief, no. I think it goes to, what is parenting? Parenting is, first of all, it's our job is to teach right and wrong. Our job is to educate in what is right, what is true. Our job is to prepare our kids for the future, to protect them and to guide them. Folks, there's no better place for that than being in the middle of God's people in the house of God. And there's no worse place to do that than out there in culture. Yeah. And so it's, it's, it's like, duh, do, do, we, do our kids need to go to church? Yeah, yeah, they do. Uh, should, you know what? Honestly, I grew up, to, I don't even know. I would get in trouble if I asked, do I have to go to church today? <laughs> so um, it was just, it was sort of the, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And let me tell you what that is. That's a family value that is biblical. And I think that our young people, our children learn what is valuable to you by how you handle things like that. For instance, if, you, if you're a parent that says, oh yeah, man, that's, uh, you know, house of God, being a Christian, that's number one in our family. But if there's a ball game, if there's a ding, 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 if there's a, a going to the beach trip, and so they're out of church half the time, they just told their kid it is not a value. And that's, that's why parenting is all about showing the value to your children, not just telling them. Um, the, the, whole, the whole thing that Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Somebody said, that's the man as the head of the home. Well, what if, what if you're a single mom? You get to say that too. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Jay's, Jay's mom said that. I, I guess what I want to say is, I understand, the, I understand the stress of that. When I, I was a kid, I, I was in band, and we'd have these band trips that would go to these competitions to get home at 2 in the morning on Sunday morning. Let me tell you what. This fella, yep, I was in Sunday school. I was in Sunday school every time. My friends, oh, no, their moms <laughs> and dads let them be the spiritual leaders of their family. And so if Junior stayed home, they stayed home too. But it wasn't like that. And you know what? I don't regret that one bit. Because my mom and dad told me what was important. And they acted that out. I want to show you this scripture real quickly. It says, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. You know that word exasperate means, has to do with consistency. Don't be inconsistent to your children. Don't say to your kids, God is number one in our home. But the kids don't see you act that out in the way you treat God's house. I think that's what exasperates them. And um, it's, it's, it's one of those kind of things to where in a family, either you're the parent or you let your children be it, or you let your children's social schedule and recreation and uh, ball game schedule be the spiritual leader of your home. And I think you need to make the decision. Great. All right, next question. Uh, why is it so hard for families to enjoy a meal without the use of their cell phones? <laughs> I can give you the short answer. Because you allow it. And that's the short answer, right? So I would just say either you allow it and or you allow it and you do it. <laughs> so um, last, Mother's, last week, Mother's Day, we went out to lunch. And I looked over uh, the, the restaurant and there was a lady with her little child and two teenage boys. And one of them had his earplugs in and was just doing this the whole meal. And I thought, oh, and I, look, I, I wouldn't judge that family, but I thought, that's bad. 
That's bad for the family. We did a series a couple years ago called The Table. We spent a whole year talking about the table. And I think that the table, in some ways, is a sacred place because it's where we build relationships. So whether it's a restaurant, at home, under a tree, at a picnic, wherever you're at, I think relationships or the table is sacred because it's where we do relationship building. Why do you think it is that when Jesus did communion and we refer to the communion table? Because it is the place that we come for relationship. And so I would just encourage you, you know, mom and dad and whoever, take some time and um, establish some boundaries and protect that space. We've got two books that I just want to encourage you to get. Um, If you can only get one book as a family, I would say this one is called The Tech Wise Family. At our Boundaries in Technology meeting a couple weeks ago, I learned a lot. I went. It was fantastic. Um, But this is one of the books that was recommended. If you can get one book, we'll put it on the screen. And there's eight or ten in Kingwood Joe's, maybe, if First Service didn't buy them all. Uh, But I would say get this. It's a great, great book to help you um, establish your values as a family and how you might apply those to technology. The second one is Reclaiming Conversation. The power of talk in a digital age. Look, we got to face this fact. Our kids are smarter than we are about technology. They just are. Most, 99% of us. So we've got to find a way to, to do our values in a technological age that we don't totally understand. And the truth is, if you're going to do that well, we all need some help. Here's some help for you. So let's do the next question. If you feel certain that God placed you with your spouse, is it also possible to feel certain that your marriage isn't something God has planned for you, specifically if your spouse no longer wants to be with you? Okay, I understand where this comes from. This is the marriage that seems so awesome that God was in it and somebody prophesied y'all are supposed to get married and you, (laughs) and and it was a great wedding, but it has soured and things are not going well. And, and so there's this temptation to say, wow, I married the wrong person. I just need to throw this one away and then go find the one God really wanted me to marry. But that sort of, that sort of misses something really big. Marriage is a covenant. And your salvation with, with God is a covenant. It's a, it's a covenant we make with Him. And marriage is the same way. It's not something that we let feelings or seasons that we go through, our struggles, our pain, or anything else destroy. Covenants are supposed to be permanent. Marriage is also uh, a, a relationship, a friendship relationship between two people who don't love each other. They like each other, too. And that's how it's supposed to be with God too. Sometimes our relationship with God doesn't work that way and we get spiritually unbalanced and we start wondering if God loves us. And the same thing happens in marriages when the friendship element may not be. Maybe they're going through a bad season there. Marriages are also about passion and love. And so is our relationship with God. So I'm saying marriage and and relationship with God go hand in hand. We don't throw our faith away just because there are struggles that we go through. And I think in marriage, people just look for reasons to throw it away quickly. But also the truth is that sometimes that happens. Sometimes divorce happens. Sometimes marriage ends because one person is the only one trying. Sometimes uh, things have happened. And I want want to show you this scripture. This This is incredible. This is out of 1 Corinthians 7. It says, if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. Um, There is a reason divorce happens. The Bible says 
that they're not bound anymore. If a, if a person who turns their back on their marriage or on Christ or whatever wants to go away from you, you can't, one person can't make the marriage happen. They can't. But to throw it away at the first sign of trouble is also making a mistake. Look at the next verse. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? It's saying, you know what? If you hang in there and you fight for it, who knows? You might end up saving your marriage and your spouse as well. I just think we, we take, make marriage something more of a Hollywood thing in our culture. And I think we have to fight against that like we, like we do the other things that press on us. Marriage is important. It's not something we just throw away. Fantastic. Okay, last question. Well, we're, we're a little over, but if you'll hang with me, we'll wrap up here. How do you keep from growing bitter and angry after multiple offenses from your spouse? I've forgiven my spouse, but I cannot forget. Um, we're having difficulties moving forward. Okay, I just want to ask a question to all the married people in the room, and it's completely okay to be honest. How many of you have ever been offended more than once by your spouse? My hand is up. Everybody, really? <laughs> yes, yes, that's the way it works, right? We, we all uh, have multiple offenses in marriage. Now, I don't want to make light of this because if we're talking about adultery and there are multiple offenses, there may come a time when, when, when we need to call it quits and we need to back out of this because there are other problems that just continuing the cycle is not going to help. But, but I do want to say this. I think oftentimes... What we try to do when we're offended is we try to make the person earn their way back in. So I think we actually get trust and forgiveness backwards. We say, if you will earn my trust back, I will forgive you. And I think that's, I think that's a very ineffective way to do it because um, you, I don't think that you have the ability to trust someone you don't forgive. I don't think you can trust them you don't you won't forgive them so I think you actually have to reverse that I think you have to say in order that trust may be rebuilt I want to forgive you yes. I forgive you I make the decision to forgive you uh, Ephesians 4:32 says this be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you so here's the thing where do you and I get the power to forgive from we get it from Jesus from his grace and whatever it is that your spouse has done to you it's not nearly as bad as what you did to Jesus you killed Jesus you and I killed Jesus that's what our sin did and so Jesus has the power because he's perfect and sacrificial and unselfish to forgive us and we can take that forgiveness we receive from Jesus and we can give it then to our spouse but None of us have the power to forgive everything or some things by ourselves. That's why we have to depend on Christ for that power. Now, sometimes the spouse will re-wound you in the same area. Let's pretend it's not adultery. They'll re-wound you in the same area over and over. What do you do? Well, sometimes it is an overflow of their own dysfunction. In other words, they can't help it just yet. But what do you do when it's a violation? I think back to what Pastor Mark said earlier about enabling. You have to, you have to communicate some boundaries. In other words, maybe this is part of the brokenness of your life, but just because it is doesn't mean you have the right to talk to me like that or treat me this way. 
Therefore, this is a boundary. So if you engage that way, I'm going to back away. Because I'm not, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to allow that. I'm not going to have this. And so I think you have the right. Now, you, what you're saying is, I will not punish you. I will not seek revenge on you. I love you. But neither am I going to stand and participate in this because it's crossing a line. And so I think it's okay to communicate those boundaries. And I think that actually empowers you to forgive. To say, I, look, I'm, that's your deal. And maybe it'll raise some self-awareness of your spouse to say, I can't help this. I need to learn a new pattern or I need to find you know, some healing. So um, that, that's the answer I would give when the, you're dealing with forgiveness and trust. Now, uh, I want to I wanna ask this question. How many of you, or if you've been married 25 years or longer, would you stand? Would you stand? If you've been married 25 years or longer, would you just stand for a minute? First off, that's super cool, right? I mean, that's just really, really cool. Uh, number two, those of you who are standing, would you be honest with us for a minute? Um, has there ever been a place in your life where you had to forgive your spouse? <laughs> Was it hard? Was, yeah, some, some people are more vocal than others. They've been married a long time, though they've earned that right. Uh, how many of you would say there's a point in your marriage where you got stuck and you just you didn't know how to move forward, you got stuck? What? Everybody? Everybody's gotten stuck at some point? Yes, look, stay standing. If you're married and you're not standing, find one of these people and take them out to dinner and pay for it. <laughs> and say to them, tell us how you did it and you will receive a wealth of wisdom, I guarantee it. Would everybody else stand now? As we end this service, I just want to end like this, and I want to go to prayer. I want to ask our prayer team to come, and I want to ask everyone if you just close your eyes and quiet your heart for a minute. And, and I don't know, for some reason or another, when we get to this point and I say, oh, everybody close your eyes, some of you think that doesn't apply to you, and I don't know why. Would everyone close their eyes, please? This is a moment where I think people make very important decisions. If you're at a place in your relationship and you're stuck, we all, look, the 25-year veterans and up in the room have all said, we've been stuck. It happens to everybody. Or maybe you've been divorced and you wonder, am I ever going to heal? Am I ever going to get over this? Am I ever going to be better? Or maybe you're in a situation with parenting where you say, we can't agree or we can't, we're having issues, we're stuck in this. We don't know how to move forward. Or maybe you're just single and you say, I seem to be stuck in this spot that I'm in. Look, everybody gets stuck. It's okay to be stuck. But here's what I want to guarantee you. When you take a step of honesty and say, now Jesus, I need your help. Can I promise you something? God's going to help you. He's going to help you. When you get stuck, Jesus is going to help you. He's there. He wants to forgive. He wants to heal. He wants to redeem. He wants, he wants forgiveness and love and health and strength and life to flow in you today. James says, confess your sins one another that you might be healed. But it starts with you saying, hey, we're stuck. And when you say that, you invite the power and the presence of Jesus and the grace of God to come and do a miracle work. And so today, if you're just stuck somewhere, maybe you just need inner healing. Maybe you've been beat up on the inside by a bad family you were raised in, and you just need some healing. Wherever you are, would you just lift your hand and say, 
I just need Jesus today. I just need Jesus' help. Would you just lift your hand? Just lift it up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yes, in the back, in the middle, in the front. Yes. Yeah, just lift it up. Just lift it up. I need Jesus' help. Yeah, I see you. Thank you. Yep, in the, in the cove, in the balcony. Yes. I just need Jesus' help. Hey, this is a safe place. Nobody's going to judge you. Here's what I'm going to do. In just a minute, I'm going to ask you to come to one of these like 25-year veterans, some of these folks and these other folks who are great people of prayer. I'm just going to ask you to come and say, hey, I need Jesus' help. And they're just going to pray for you. And I promise you, I promise you, when you allow Jesus' presence into the situation, hey, the situation may not change today. I'm not going to lie to you, but your perception, your perspective of it's going to at least. And that's a miracle. And maybe even the circumstances will change today. How do we know? But let's try. So wherever you are this morning, I'm not, we're not going to embarrass you. Not, nothing like that. We're going to ask you to come to prayer, and I'm not going to let everybody stand here and look at you. We're going to dismiss just a little bit after that. So if you raised your hand this morning, what I want you to do is I want you to just come right now. I want you to come right now and say, I need, I need Jesus' help. I need Jesus' help. Man, I've made these prayer walks before myself. I can tell you that. We need Jesus' help today. Maybe you're a spouse, and you've got to come by yourself. Come by yourself. I need Jesus' help today. I need some healing. If you're in the middle somewhere, say, hey, can you let me out? I just need to... I just need Jesus' help today. This is a good thing. It's a good thing. This is a good thing. Lord, I thank you today for the healing river of Jesus Christ that fills this place, the presence of God that forgives and heals and strengthens and delivers and sets free and moves us on to better and healthier and stronger places. God, I pray by your grace today that reconciliation and healing and grace and an overcoming power would fill our hearts as we seek to build our life on you in our relationships. God, have your way now. Have your way now. Before we say amen, if you need to come, come now. We're going to dismiss.